Aloha. You are listening to the Dangerous Love Podcast. I am with a good friend, Mitch Warner, managing partner of the Arbinger Institute. And that will ring a lot of bells for a lot of our listeners and and people that we've interacted with over the years. Arbinger has been uh, deeply foundational in my understanding of conflict, my work as a mediator, I have a long-term relationship with Arbinger. My students will, of course, all know this from reading the Anatomy of Peace in their freshman peace-building class to reading Outward Mindset. And just so excited to have Mitch on today to talk about Arbinger and some of the principles uh, that Arbinger teaches as well. And Mitch, I really appreciate you coming on. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Chad. It is such a privilege to be on today with you. This is one of those few times that COVID-19 is a blessing because Mitch would be flying all over the world right now doing, doing things for Arbinger, but now he's, he's stuck at home. And so he has a little extra time to, to get on a podcast with us. So this is, this is a prime time event. No, this, we would have made the time at any time. This is a special experience for me. Thanks, Chad. Mitch, maybe we can just start by getting to know you a little bit and how you, you came to be working with Arbinger. Sure. So um, uh, m- my father was instrumental in the founding of Arbinger. His, his life's work was to understand this paradox of self-deception. Uh, and from, a, from an academic standpoint at first, he was a professor of philosophy, but really became quickly interested in the idea that has so much practical implication, how it is that we become uh, get in our own way, how it is that we create the problems that we complain about. And it's the, it's the problem that, that psychologists have looked at for years. Um, how is it that, that we seem to be blind to the very problems that, that, that get in our own way, but yet at the same time, um, we must understand those problems at some level if we're to hide them from ourselves so completely. And, and how does that happen? And that, it had such powerful practical implication that um, he began sharing those ideas as he uncovered them with those around him. And uh, a group of people coalesced that began thinking about those ideas deeply and began sharing them in organizations. And so um, I grew up hearing about those ideas. That was just what my dad talked about at home. And um, and that was very, very interesting and, and began to see him uh, working with others to help organizations implement these ideas and and see the kinds of changes that would happen in people. And uh, and I never actually thought I could be part of Arbinger, the organization that, that shares these ideas with the world because of my connection to him. Um, but uh, I wanted to be I wanted to be surrounded by people who were working with those ideas. So um, when I was 18, I I went and worked with the Anasazi Foundation um, and saw how they implemented those ideas in the way that they worked with children that had addictions and behavioral challenges of one kind or another. And then then later on, I was a trail walker. Yeah. And, And I loved that experience. It was it was an amazing experience to see those ideas at work. And to be honest, it, those ideas were just as much at work in me as a, as a counselor, so to speak, to those, those youth as they were at work in the lives of those, those, those kids. Um, you kind of realize when you're out there that all of us are broken to one degree or another. All of us need to, to change in different ways. Uh, and, and, and after that experience, I knew that I wanted to work in an organization uh, that was implementing those ideas in one way or another. And my life path eventually led me into uh, healthcare administration in long-term care, working in nursing homes. And uh, I was able to work with an organization called Plum Healthcare that, that took these ideas that Arbinger teaches very, very seriously. In fact, they they built their whole company trying to figure out what would happen if you, if you designed an organization very intentionally with these ideas as bedrock. And um, that was a remarkable experience as well. And out of that experience, then uh, had the opportunity to come to Arbinger about 10 years ago. And it's been a remarkable, remarkable experience being here at Arbinger and helping other organizations now uh, work to implement those ideas in their 
in their day-to-day work. Just talk to me a little bit about the evolution, what you were learning at Arbinger, because you're working with all these organizations and you're training all these organizations and you're getting feedback about what's helpful and not what's not helpful. And I think all of that sort of ends up working into an evolving understanding of what you're doing. Yeah, that's, uh, it's interesting to think back on, on the last 10 years that I've been here. And of course, this has been going on for uh, 30 years before that. Um, one of the, one of the key, uh, one of the key frameworks that we help people think about, we, we have an acronym around called SAM, see others, adjust efforts, measure impact. We call it the outward mindset pattern. It's just a way of thinking about how people who are outward, who are thinking about others, organize their work. They don't think about what they do first. It's well, what are other people needing? If I see them as people and their challenges, what are their needs and objectives? And then how could I adjust? And then how could we measure our impact? And sometimes we've done a good job implementing that pattern. Sometimes we haven't. Sometimes we get stuck in our own head and go, well, here's what we've always been doing. Um, But I think there's something about the way that Arbinger, uh, Arbinger was created that's important in thinking about our journey as an organization. And that is that, that it was never ideas for their own sake. It's, it's ideas that are born out of, trying to understand real people's experience. In fact, those that first kind of coalesced around these ideas to think about them, they realized quickly that they weren't going to be able to even understand these ideas on an intellectual level until they were living them and trying to see how they played out personally in their everyday nitty gritty lives. And so everything has been practical from the beginning, even though it has this very robust robust logic. and deep philosophical underpinnings, it's always been practical. It's always been about how do we help. And so uh, there was language early on that was born out of that more academic con- uh, tradition. Um, those that were thinking about those ideas were coming out of that tradition. And so there was language around that. And that was helpful to some. And then you realize oh, that's not as helpful to others. Um, we talked about this deeper element of our experience as our way of being for many years, that who I am is who I am with others. And how do you talk about that? How do you talk about that deeper level that's always underneath behavior? And way of being was a way to talk about that. And we found just over the years that sometimes that language is hard for people to pick up and, and use. It, it's hard for them to, uh, to think through what that language is identifying in their experience. And so we've tried many different things over the years, just in an attempt to help people quickly see these ideas and their interconnectivity with their own life, with their own experience. And so a few years ago, we, we um, began to speak in terms of mindset that any behavior, while uh, any behavior is a function of how I see, well, you can talk about that in terms of way of being, my way of being with others, my way of being in the world. You can talk about that in terms of my mindset, um, how I see myself, how I see others. And we found that that was just, much more immediately helpful to people, especially in an organizational setting uh, that seemed to resonate. And so you learn, you know, and then you're adjusting and you're measuring. And, and as we started to measuring measure, we found that, oh, people can pick that up much more easily. They can see, they can see that in their own lives more quickly. And so we made those adjustments. And, and that's an example of adjustments we've made. Um, I think just generally speaking over the years, what we've tried to do is simplify the language of the ideas so that people can pick it up more easily across cultures, across different life experiences. And that's what we found, Chad. It's been neat to see that across any culture, uh, across any life experience, people can identify this element of their experience. I remember the first time I went through an Arbinger workshop I think I, like many people, like I walked out of the workshop saying, I'm never going to be in the box with anybody again. I'm, I'm going to see every person as a person. It was so deeply moving to me, uh, the way that experience was structured, right? And and the old ones sort of ended with, did you recover a sense of helpfulness towards someone? And, you know, and and I did. And, you know, I was so excited to sort of live that out and and felt sort of forever changed. And in some ways that was true. I was forever changed, but it didn't mean that within 
days or weeks, I was back in the box and and seeing people's objects again, and sometimes even now with stronger sort of justifications, uh, you know, than, than I had before, because now I could I had a language that could also be used to blame, you know, other people right. more specifically, and I felt very very smart and virtuous about it. Now, well, now I know what's the problems there in the box, and one of the things that I've just seen over the years is 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 what's sort of happening after the the foundational understanding around tools that people are given to actually implement this in their organization, implement this in their lives and, and this intentionality around mindset where it's not just a state of being, but that it's something that we intentionally build together and it's found in the structures of our organizations and it's, it's found in the structures of our relationships and everything else. And how do we sort of dismantle those inward inward structures and replace them with outward structures. And, and, and I've just seen with that comes this, this robust ability to actually sustainably drive, right. That, 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 that thing that is the initial impact. And I'm just curious about sort of that journey, because, you know, for me as a conflict mediator and, and somebody works in peace building, that's always where the rubber hits the road. Like I can do a mediation and, and people can get in agreement and they can really, really turn towards each other. But then they have to go back and live together or they have to go back and be in a community together. They have to go back in an organization together. And I can't be there 24 seven to, to sit down with them every time. And so how do you empower people with the tools to be able to, to, to live this robustly every day? Yeah. And we, we found the same thing. You would, people would have that experience and they would want to be different. And they, and, and we have that experience of, of, of feeling like I, I, I am different because I am with people differently. I'm seeing people differently. I'm now in response to others. But then you go back into your organization and so many organizations, they have ways of working that invite inwardness, ways of rewarding how we work that invite inwardness. And you look at even family cultures that invite inwardness, that reinforce and provoke inwardness. So so what can you do? And one of the things we've always tried to be careful about is that in, in helping people figure out what to do now that I am committed to staying outward, to being out of the box, to seeing others. One of the things we've been careful about is that, is that there's no one way that it looks like if I'm outward. It's not like if I turn outward, then I do this instead of this. And we, as we all know, who have experienced Arbinger's work, um, I can engage in many different behaviors. In, in a given moment from an outward mindset. And so being outward in this moment with you right now on this podcast, right, might mean that I do one thing and I can't prescribe that to anybody else. The, the, the right thing to do with you right now in this moment around this, this project that we're engaged in, in a workplace setting or with this particular child on this particular day with, with my partner, um, with, with someone in my neighborhood, I can't do it and then say, oh, well, that worked. So now I'm going to tell everybody else that they should do it, which is kind of how a lot of different, you know, anything from leadership help to marriage counseling, we, we take something that worked in one instance and then we bake that and then we write a book about it and then we say everybody should do this and then people go try it and it falls flat on their face because the right thing to do, the helpful thing to do in any given moment is the thing I do in response to those I am with, the unique human beings that I am with in this unique circumstance, in this unique moment. So I can't prescribe it. So then, then what do you do to help people implement? Well, so are there certain, are there certain practices that we could engage in that as long as we were engaging in them with the right intent would help us to see the people in those situations and the uniqueness of those circumstances in a way that will allow us to respond as people to people. And one of the things that we found that's been really helpful is just thinking differently about what my job is. For example, in a workplace environment, that my job isn't just to do a set of tasks and to put forward the right effort, but to have the right impact, which means that if I'm thinking about my job that way and I'm reporting to my manager on a monthly basis, well, then I've got to talk to all of the people that I impact. Now, those conversations are going to be unique and we're never going to prescribe a script for how those should look. But we can say, hey, 
when we're outward, when we see our job is to be having the right kind of impact on others in the way we do our work, then how often should we be reporting to our manager on all of those things? What would be most helpful to them? Well, is that monthly? Is it weekly? Is it quarterly? You decide. But if once you put in place that practice from an outward mindset, stick to it. Because when you're outward, you have a sense of what that could look like for you in this organization to be most helpful. And just putting that practice into place will invite me to go have all the conversations I should be having with those that I impact. That's one example of a practice that you can put into place. It's not prescriptive in the details, but it provides a structure that keeps me seeing people. Um, and I think those are the most helpful things that we can do from an implementation perspective is when I'm outward, when I'm feeling that change, what are the things that I know that I could be doing on an ongoing basis that if I discipline myself to do, wouldn't tell me what to do in those situations, but it would keep me with people. It would keep me seeing them. It would keep me in conversation. It would keep me focused on the right things, focused on my impact. Mitch, I, I work with a lot of people. I teach a lot of students. They, they love Arbinger. We're always talking about Arbinger concepts. I was talking to a few people. They were like, oh, you're talking to Mitch Warner on your podcast. Will you ask him? So uh, this is completely unscripted. Uh, okay. So I'm going to put Mitch on the spot, but just uh, some questions that people had, uh, you know, about Arbinger. I know you have to wrestle with a lot of these, but man, we're going to get to hear them from Mitch Warner uh, today. Um, need to be seen as. How, how, do I, how do I let go of these justifications and this box that need to be seen as? Um, you know, I think a lot of people, when they, they hear about those four things, better than and I deserve, there's sometimes sort of a clear path of what, of what that looks like. But when, when I struggle with my own sense of self or worth or whatever that often kind of manifests itself in sort of worse than justifications or need to be seen as, uh, sometimes people struggle, I think, a little bit of figuring out how do I, how do I let go of those justifications? Wow, that's a heavy one. And I, I wrestle with that box every day. Uh, I, in fact, I, my sense is having shared these ideas with many, many people in many different organizations and, and, and in different environments is that more people wrestle with the worse than side of that spectrum than the better than side. Uh, uh, I think in many, in many instances, the better than uh, side of that, that spectrum is, is more socially acceptable. Uh, I think in, particularly in, in uh, American corporate culture, uh, the worse than side isn't as socially acceptable. And so oftentimes we don't talk about that as much. Um, in our, our latest course that we just released last week, we really tried to be more intentional about really digging into that side of the, uh, of, of the, of, of the worse than and need to be seen as box than we have in the past. Um, but I've been there. So first of all, if you're there, um, I'm right there with you and I understand uh, the struggle and I don't know that I have an answer, the answer to this, but I'll just share you, share with you what's been helpful for me as I've wrestled through that box um, and still I'm wrestling with it all the time. I think the first thing to understand and to remember when I am consumed with this need to be seen as box is that, um, is that I am as separate from others when I'm in this box as I am when I'm in a better than and an I deserve place. Um, when I'm in a need to be seen as box, everyone in my life is my audience and everyone is my judge. Everyone I, have, I believe is judging me and seeing me as coming up short or is looking and trying to see how I'm coming up short. Is trying to discern my deficiencies. Is trying to is trying to see where I'm actually not what I what I want to be. And um, and I know when I'm in that place and overwhelmed by these feelings of being watched and and feeling judged and at risk of being exposed for not being who I really uh, say I am. Uh, when I just remember that, wait a minute. I have just judged everybody in my life. I'm worried that everyone's judging me and looking at me and seeing my deficiencies, but, but I have just pronounced this 
this categorical judgment on everyone around me that they are looking at me, that they see themselves as better than me, that they're interested in how I'm coming up deficient. And is that my experience of other people? Am I trying to see how they're failing? Am I trying to see their deficiencies? If that's not my experience, then is it really fair for me to, is it really fair for me to project that onto other people? Um, I think that's one thing that's been helpful to me. The other thing I think is something that is um, a little countercultural to where I see people go in trying to overcome the worst then and need to be seen as box that comes along with it. And that is a movement that I've seen recently, which is a, um, don't quite know the words to put this in, but it's kind of a, a self propping up movement. It's, um, I'm going to overinflate in my own mind my view of myself. And that's how I'm going, going to overcome this worse than box. I'm going to be my number one cheerleader. And, um, and I understand where that's coming from, that movement that I see culturally, generally. But I do think that for me, and I can't speak for anyone else, but for me, the project of overcoming the worse than box is a project that is fraught with, with peril. Because the moment I try to overcome the worse than box by propping up in my own mind, my view of myself, I'm now still focused on myself. And that's the, that's the biggest trap of the worse than box. In the worse than box, it's just like any other box. It's a self-focus, a consuming, an all-consuming self-focus that keeps me right here focused on me, that doesn't let me see other people. So first step is to recognize that, wait, other people, they're not judging me. And if I believe that, I've just pronounced the very judgment on them that I'm afraid of. But number two, I'm never going to get out of this until I begin to get curious about them. First thing is to remove the judgment I've placed on them, on all the people around me, moment to moment. And number two, to get really curious about them. Well, what's life like for them? How can I become their cheerleader? How can I see the best in them? Because once that becomes my project, now I fade into the background. The problem was I was so front and center that I couldn't see anything else. And once that becomes the project, then then it's no longer about me and I start to recede. I think those are two fundamentally different approaches to overcoming the worse than box. My fear is that culturally we have seen the worse than box and the paralyzing effect it has in our lives. And we've attacked it in the most unproductive way that we can. The way to overcome it is not to become my, a cheerleader of myself, to become really curious about myself, to become really curious and cheerlead those around me. That that's at least what I've seen in my own experience. It's an it's an inward approach to an inward problem, right? Uh, it is is essentially what you described there, right? And th- and this is the trap, right? When I'm inward, it's very hard to think outward, and and so the solutions I come up to, even letting go of being inward, often are inward, yeah. and and I come up with another way of self focus, uh, right? It, and, and it looks different. Uh, but its origins root from the exact same, the same place, and and I, and I think that is the 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 hard part is because when we are trapped in those justifications, we are so inward, it's very hard sometimes to think of of narratives and stories that are, that are outward. Um, we we're still seeking solutions, which is great, but we're seeking them in an inward way. And uh, you know, in a conflict, we talk about this with conflict styles, and that most of the conflict styles are inward and they all bounce around from each other. So if competition doesn't work, I just give in or I just avoid. Or, you know, if I, if accommodation doesn't work after a while, finally I say, forget it. I'm just going to go and I'm going to fight for everything that I want because they don't care about me. And, and everything just moves from inward to inward and the frustration just builds and builds and builds because it doesn't seem like any of them are working because the only one that works is collaboration. And that requires us both to be present yeah. and both to be alive, uh, right? Starting with me. That's, that's hard to shift. <laughs> right, which is why you have so much work. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's uh, it's just hard to just think of that on our own. Yeah. Well, even you know, uh, even that language, the the idea of enabling the shift, right? The shift in myself from inward to outward. Um, that shift is always an indirect project, right? I shift because I've shifted in the way I see you, 
um, I think probably at the core, when you get to the very core of Arbinger, is the truth that who I am is who I am with others. I, there's, no, there's no me separate from how I am with you. My response to you defines me. And I think that um, these, as you, as you called it, this in, these inward approaches to my inward problems, the inward approach is to say, I'm inward. I don't want to be. So that's a good first step. But if I turn away from others, and I think that the way to solve this is to go back in the shed, right, and tinker on myself, to fix myself, to love myself, and all of that, right? Those are well-intentioned approaches to overcoming my own inwardness, but they keep me trapped in myself. And that, that is the definition of each of the boxes. And so instead of, instead of thinking about the project as improving myself on my own, I am who I am if I begin to respond differently to you, right? Um, there's, no, there's no kindness in me except for the kindness that I feel in response to you. I don't work on that in and of itself in a vacuum. It's just, how am I with you? And then I'm, then I'm free, then I'm out. And it is a, it's a, I, I know the I, the, I think the question comes from a place where you feel paralyzed. And we all know the freedom of no longer thinking about ourselves, but we can't go about that in a way that keeps us self-focused. I, um, I write a little bit in my book about self-preservation, that, that natural instinct. There's also the them, them preservation, right? I'm going to fix them and I'm going to fix something sort of externally and that, that's going to sort of solve my problem. And this conceptualization, I think you're also fighting a long trend, and I know your father talked a lot about this in, in Western philosophy about, about the self, and right, this this conception of of the self, which is so rampant, especially in Western, in in Western cultures and Western philosophy, and and this this shift to thinking about it's not me or them, it's us, and it's always us, and it's nothing else ever but us. Yes, is uh, is is a challenging shift because there is, as you said, a culture, but it's a very long and historically rooted culture. Uh, that that goes way way back around that sort of conceptualization of the self, and uh, and and while you don't have to be a philosopher to to even know or to even know where it came from or, or be able to put words to it, but it's there and it runs as culture tends to do invisibly, and invisibly through so many messages that we have, and and to be able to let go of that. Now it's interesting some cultures that are non-Western may have an actually better understanding or conceptualization of, the, of that, interestingly enough, um, which, is, which it means Arbinger in those audiences is sometimes uh, like, yeah, you're telling us some things that we, we already know, right? Uh, where a lot of times Western culture, it's, that's, that's a really hard thing to say there is no just me. And you're right. You don't have to be a philosopher to trace that out. I think you can spend time, you know, on any social media platform for five minutes and you see that borne out. But um, but I think everybody, when they, no matter what culture you come from, I think everyone has had the experience of being fully, having this experience of discovering, wait a minute, I am no longer thinking of myself and I feel liberated, no longer trapped in the feelings of need to be seen as or worse than or better than or I deserve because I'm with other people. I think we all have these these moments in our lives where we've had that experience and we realize that to the degree that you can say, that's who I am. Right. I think people feel that they feel like, Hey, who I be that, that experience I felt most myself when I was no longer thinking about myself, when I was with others in response to others and this idea of self receded, um, it wasn't front and center. Yeah. So Arbinger talks a lot about this uh, this inside-outside transformation, this I, this idea of turning first, of of the most important move, and and how does that relate to the sometimes systemic and larger cultural forces that exist, whether that's in an organization or you know in a community? How does this this language and these ideas? help not just change individuals, 
but ultimately help us change sometimes the structures in place. And you know, I know Arbiter actually has a lot of experience with this in organizations because you can have inward structures within an organization sure. that that aren't necessarily attached to individuals, but have have a long legacy of sort of being in place and inviting sort of inwardness in, in a lot yeah. of ways. And I think right now with so many people looking at the world and saying, okay, the Yes, I get that. We all need to be alive to each other and see each other as people. But how you got these massive structures and and power in place as well? You know what? What does the language yeah. say to that? Yeah, um, you know, I, I want to get to that in a in a minute. I I I think first it's important that we don't lose sight of what we can can do. I, I know in organizations when we go in and we we begin to help people turn outward toward each other, um, it becomes the first excuse to turn inward to say, yes, but structurally, we, we are not designed for outwardness. We don't incentivize for outwardness. We don't reward outwardness. Um, and the, the, the people who, are, who have the authority to make decisions that can change the systemic things that invite inwardness, um, they're not on board. Um, that I, I think, first of all, that can't be our excuse for not turning outward. Um, what can I still do in the middle of an inward structure, inward systemic um, structures that, that invite inwardness, that perpetuate inwardness? Um, because I have seen too many times people inside of an organization turn outward and, and not use the excuse of the organization, not use the excuse of these structures or systemic issues to, to turn inward. And, and, and the power and the influence of someone who chooses to stay outward, even in the face of systemic inwardness, is, is remarkable. And it has changed power over time. Um, now, if you have the authority to do something, well, we can begin to think together about what would this look like? What would it look like if we saw people as people? What would it look like if everyone that this system or this structure touches was seen as a person, was seen as a person in the same degree that those who design and perpetuate the structure see themselves? Uh, and that, that often invites a very different way of thinking. But I don't think that thinking ever comes from someone who doesn't, uh, who isn't seeing that they can do something in the midst of inwardness. You know, organizations are at the end of the day, people organized to achieve something bigger than themselves. A family at the end of the day is a group of people who are organized to achieve something together. A community is that way. Nations are that way. And nations are run by people. And so being, if, if we find ourselves, whether in an organization or in a community or in, in a society that's governed by structures, by systems that invite inwardness, our first step has to be, I have to stay outward in the midst of that inwardness. I can't let that be my excuse. And then how can I invite others to join in the process? That happens as a group. So to the degree that I've allowed the inwardness of the structure of the system to separate me from others in that system, I will never achieve the lasting systemic change at, on, on the, in the whole that I want. I cannot say, well, look, this group has been marginalized or this group has been mistreated and identify only with that group because now I have marginalized in that very act all of those who I say are the other. And it's only together that we get enough power, enough influence, enough uh, of a movement to change that we can do something about it. I, I've seen that too many times at a small scale in an organization to say that that couldn't work on a large scale. And, and if, we're, if we look at large scale changes that have happened over time, they have happened because those who went about the process of turning outward did so in a way that did not alienate, but that brought all of those people together to say, yeah, we could be different. And we are 
this thing that we're talking about. We are together. We form enough, enough uh, influence in order to change things at a larger level. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course it does. It's, it's also, when we're in inward state, it's counterintuitive, right? When we're, when we're in inward, that what you just said isn't what our instincts are, inward. Right? Or inwardly, yeah. it's other people need to change. They're, they're the ones. And when they change, my life will get easier. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I, that I hear a lot, and, and look, I'm empathetic to it because there's a, there's a truth to this. It's often not fair. In other words, yeah. the person that might be the victim of, of an of a unjust structure in an organization is the one to ask, being asked to turn first, not the person who is, is inward and, and, and propagating it. There's a, there's a level of, of, of a sense of it feels unfair and just, um, especially from an inward state. Yeah. Right? Like they should be the ones turning. Uh, mm-hmm. They started it. They, they've perpetuated. I've suffered, you know, from these sorts of things, and and I'm empathetic for for that because there is real damage that's done when we're inward. There's real pain that that's that's caused, and and it's, some of it's emotional, and and we certainly see in the world that it can also be be physical, uh, you know, as well, and and crushing crushing pain. And so, how do I balance that with also sort of understanding what you said? That as long as I stay with my back turned towards the other, I am no longer an invitation for them to turn. Yeah. In fact, I'm a justification for them to not. Right. And um, I actually unwittingly perpetuate the very thing that I say that I wish would change. And, and that's why the most important move is also the most dangerous move. And it's also, it's also sometimes the hardest thing because I, I may have to stand and see the humanity of others, even when they choose not to stand and see mine. Well, it's interesting because in the moment when I'm inward, it feels like the most dangerous move, right? The irony is that it turns out it's the safest move. I just, I would never see that, right? When I'm inward. So last year, um, the individual Turn the World Outward award winner was Daryl Davis. And I had the experience of flying down to Memphis and um, uh, Daryl and I met, I think, in the Atlanta airport, and then we flew to Memphis together. And then we spent some time um, in Mississippi. We drove down to Mississippi, and we met Scott Shepard, who was a former Grand Dragon in the Ku Klux Klan. And um, I had no idea what to expect driving to this man's home with Daryl. And Daryl, he... Um, he grew up uh, about the first 10 years of his life um, overseas and then came back to the United States with his family and didn't understand racism. It literally did not understand it. He did not understand how you could hate him uh, because of the color of his skin. Um, and growing up, um, that was uh, a, an all-consuming question for him. Um, and. And yet, in the middle of that, and I, I honestly, I, I, I cannot understand, literally, I cannot understand the pain of someone in his situation. I am a privileged white man who has grown up with many advantages. I don't know what it's like to be black. I don't know what it's like to have violence perpetrated upon you because of the color of your skin. I don't know what it's like to be systematically, systemically marginalized and to be, to live in fear. Uh, I just don't know what that's like, but, but Daryl knows what that's like. And in the middle of that, his, his motivating concern was, trying to understand why would you hate me if you don't even know me? And that led him to reach out to members of the Ku Klux Klan. If you took the, the far right of extreme on this spectrum um, in racist attitudes and violent behaviors, he reached out to the farthest extreme, extreme on that spectrum just to get curious with them. 
And they sense no resistance in him, just honest curiosity. And that led to 200 so far of those KKK members giving him their robes, walking away from that way of thinking and that way of living. Um, And I believe it's because there was nothing to resist in Daryl. He saw, he saw those people as people. For him, there was nobody that was beyond saving for him. I mean, he's, he looks at people and he says, I don't get it. Help me understand. And that curiosity created friendship where you would have thought there could never be friendship. And I drove with him down to um, Mississippi and we showed up at this Scott Shepherd's door and met this former Grand Dragon. And I watched those two embrace and I watched them interact with each other. And I watched Scott talk to Daryl and thank Daryl for saving his life. Um, and it was really interesting to hear this man. I, I, I honestly didn't quite know what to expect. Um, I had never met a member of the KKK before. Uh, certainly not a Grand Dragon. Um, in Mississippi, no less. And it was interesting as Scott told his story. His, his, his name, Scott, came from the last name of his black nanny, who he loved, who he saw as a member of his family. He told me, Mitch, I can tell you in all honesty, my father was not racist and my mother was not racist. I did not inherit this from my mother or my father. But I was in a place in my life where I was so consumed with the worse than box that I turned to racism as a way to escape the worse than feelings that I had to the point where he contemplated suicide many, many times. And he said, I always knew there was this little thing in the back of my head that always said, this is not right. You, you, you honestly don't believe this, what you're doing. You don't see the people that you're, that you are persecuting in the way that you're saying you do, but his need for justification his need to overcome the worse than box was so strong that he had to marginalize and do violence against others in order to see himself differently. Um, but I watched that and I think back on that experience often of just sitting in that place. And that was a place, the living room of that man and watching him interact with Daryl, who he said saved his life. That was a place where I honestly felt like I had to take off my shoes. It was a sacred space to see two people come together in this way. Um, And I can't help but think that if that can happen person to person, why couldn't that happen with millions? Why couldn't it happen? We have uh, seen that same phenomenon at peace players with Israelis and Palestinians, with Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland, people that say there's no way that they could ever connect, who deeply connect to the point of love not to the point of tolerance, uh, right? But to the, to the point of actually sincere care and, and love. And that story is such a powerful story of, you know, um, there's this conflict there. It's John Paul Lederach who talks about the moral imagination. He says, you know, sometimes it's our failure to be able to think about what's possible, to be able to see what is possible because we're so inundated and drowned every day with inwardness that it's hard to sometimes see what outward looks like or that it's, that it's possible. But when you hear stories like Daryl, you see that even in the most difficult and improbable and painful of circumstances, here's an, an powerful example of not only someone who turns outward, but then who invites hundreds. Yeah. And my guess is for people who have heard his story and been touched by it, thousands and thousands of people um, who, then, who then turn a- as well. So I want to end with this, this question. It's one that, that I think about a lot. I messed up Arminger the first time that I heard it in one really powerful way. I was so excited about the ideas and saw their application in so many places in my life that I often kind of bust in the door and said, okay, what the problem here is, is you're self-deceived, right? And, and, and so am I, you know, I'll, I'll say that, you know, so am I, but we're in a collusion here. And, and what you need to do is you know, see me as a person. And, and the more that you understand how powerfully, personally 
transforming these things are for ourselves, there's that desire that so many people have, like, how do I share this with other people, but not do it in a blaming way? Because there, there is a way of sort of looking at the world today and say, well, what the world needs is the turn. Well, you know, what those, what those protesters should be doing is turning. What those police officers should be doing, they should be turning, you know, towards other people and, and wanting to sort of, in a way, use the language to blame, even when the intention often is, is to be helpful. And to say, you know, this, this, this has been really personally transformative to me. And I think these ideas could actually be really helpful. And actually the way that you're thinking about things and doing things are actually counterproductive to what you want. And, you know, this is going back to where we started with self-deception, right? The problem is the problem of having a problem, not knowing I have a problem and resisting any suggestion that we have a problem, which is why it backfires every time we tell somebody that they're self-deceived. And so what advice would you give to people today that, that have had these powerful experiences with Arbinger and, and, and have seen the impact that it's had in their life and they want to share it to others right now with people that are really struggling, right, to see the humanity of others. How do they share it in a way that isn't finger pointing or that isn't, isn't you know, telling someone what they should be doing or even feeling offended that they don't? Uh, yeah. Right. Like, why? Why don't you do this? Like, it'll solve all of your problems. What advice do you do you give? Uh, that's a great question. I think that um, I've been in that place where I I want to go prescribe Arbinger to people, especially people that are making life harder for me. And and I I think what you just said, Chad, is probably the most important thing. That recognizing that my desire to prescribe this to others is just an indication that I see myself as healed, right? There, as, as the doctor prescribing this medicine, I'm not looking at, well, well, well how am I sick, right? Um, and so it might just be that one of the helpful things to do when you have this reaction, right? I'm seeing people who seem sick and I want to go prescribe this, I want to be the doctor, is to just wait. Uh, just maybe give yourself... 24 hours, 48 hours, whatever it is, and, and, and try to begin to see the way that that person can teach you, not the things that you have to teach that person. What could this person teach me? What, what are the things that I have learned from this person? Because I, it's very rare that I go through that process and I don't discover things that help me see the person that I want to fix as now a person. And when I see you as a person, it might be that the most helpful thing that I can do to you, for you right now is to help you discover some of the ideas that are helping me. But I can't even share those ideas with you. The right way, the most helpful way, the way that doesn't provoke resistance way to share these ideas with you won't occur to me if I don't see you as a person. With challenges, sure. But to see myself with all of those same challenges or challenges of my own and to realize that hey, you are a person, we are people together. And I think when you, if, if you can get to that place, then you'll find the right way. You'll find the right way to share it. That doesn't mean that you can control the way a person responds, but I think that's the best chance you'll have to find the way to share it. Um, so I think what you said is number one, just to recognize that that very reaction might tell me something about how I'm seeing that other person. To just wait and before I try to fix another person to see, well, what, what have I learned from this person? Because then I regain a sense of your humanity. And when, when we're people together, then there's all sorts of things that I can share with you. All sorts of things that I could suggest that as long as I'm seeing you as a person won't provoke that same kind of resistance. Um, I know the, the people who have helped me and have pointed out, hey, Mitch, you're really, really screwing this up here. I respond to them, not because of the way that they said that, um, but I respond to them because I know that they've said that because they see me as a person, that I matter, like they matter. They want me to succeed. They want to help me. They want to help me see the blind spots that I have that I'm not seeing. And that's what I'm responding to most. Super helpful, Mitch. I really appreciate you taking this hour with us and to talk about these important things. And I want to just end with some of our listeners, too, because I, I've been studying Arbinger a long time, and I've messed up Arbinger a lot in my life. Uh, despite deeply believing in the principles, I've struggled 
at times to see the people closest to me, to see strangers, to see people that I'm even trying to help as people, even when I know this stuff. And sometimes that becomes so self-defeating that I throw my hands up there and say, I'm never going to get this. And I just want to encourage all of our listeners, keep trying. Every day yeah. is a new chance to be able to follow a sense and see someone else as a person. And if you messed up the day before and you said it wrong, be like Mitch's dad, Terry Warner, apologize. Admit it and keep going and keep going. And, and uh, over time, I'd like to believe that while I still struggle to see people as people sometimes and still struggle to follow those senses, I am more alive to when I'm not. And I am more alive to trying to avoid the, the, the destructive collusion patterns that will come if I just to try, try to hold on to those justifications and, and not let go of them. And so keep, yeah. keep doing this. This is a difficult time. And, and we're, we're, we're all struggling. Yeah. Just, I think for all of us, just to be quick to discover when I've lost a sense of others' humanity and then, okay, what can I do now to regain that sense? Um, everybody that we see uh, is a person. And, and uh, everybody that we see is carrying things that, that would, I think, um, if we really knew the kinds of things that everyone is carrying, I think we'd be different with each other. Mitch Warner is the managing partner of the Arbinger Institute. You have a new online course. We do. Uh, just uh, launched this week um, in, the, in the middle of this pandemic. We, we've tried to think about how can we help people encounter these ideas in a way that doesn't require being together in person um, and that can enable people that would never be able to encounter these ideas uh, to be able to encounter them. And so we're excited about it. We're excited to to make those available to more and more people in that in the service of that mission to turn the world outward. So if you want some opportunity, you can't attend an Arbinger workshop right now, but you could go online at arbinger.com. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, and check out their new online courses. Uh, like everything that Arbinger does, it's incredibly well done and impactful. I've had a chance to look at, look at them as well. And I think it's a great, great antidote to a lot of, of what, what we're facing right now. And so um, that's at arbinger.com. You've been listening to the Dangerous Love Podcast. Aloha. Aloha.